and faith. And uh, actually, we're going to focus on some very specific emotions, two very intense emotions. Because uh, it, it's very relevant, because if you have a lot of difficulty to face your feelings, uh, it might seriously prevent you from growing in faith and serving even in a ministry or even in evangelism, in life in general. And uh, we're going to talk about the fear of rejection and anger. Because as for anger, and first of all, right up front, uh, before we start, anger is not a sin. We must clarify this immediately, because God gets angry too. And of course, we sometimes do sinful things when we are upset. But anger itself is an emotion and not a sin. And it, I, the reason why I really want to clarify that is because otherwise... If you, if you believe that anger is a sin, instead of allowing, allowing yourself to feel anger and instead of directing it towards the people who deserve it, uh, you're, you're, you're stuffing it inside yourself and you're turning your anger inward on yourself. Because unfortunately, many Christians are operating under the misconception that anger is always bad and a refusal to accept Anger will adversely be affecting uh, your life. So anger, for see, is neither good nor bad. It's how people use their anger that makes it positive or negative. Ideally, anger was given to humans by God as a tool to help build relationships. In its pure form, anger can be described as an emotional signal that tells a person something needs to be changed. It was intended to be a positive motivator to be used in giving one another feedback about our life, how, how, how life can be lived more productively. So if all anger were wrong, we wouldn't find the many reference to God, God's anger in the Old Testament because some could say, what are, you, what are we talking about? Are we going to talk about psychology, emotion, rather than the Word of God? Well, to that I would answer that there are approximately 365 references to God's anger and 80 references to man's anger in the Bible. Since God is holy, we must understand his anger as his righteous response to human sin and rebellion. And yet, over and over, we also read that God is compassionate, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving weakness, and weakness, rebellion, and sin. I'm just quoting uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7. But more precisely, uh, we can see also uh, the re- Jesus and anger in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are several words that are used most frequently to express anger. I've got some here on the screen. Those who know me, you know I'm, I'm really not good in Greek. So what I did is that I have them on the, on the board here with numbers. So number one is a word we frequently uh, see in the, uh, in the New Testament. Actually, we see it 20 times. And it means a turbulent commotion, boiling agitation of feelings, uh, sudden explosions. So it's like the word, the English, the English word rage. Uh, second word we uh,
See, in the uh, New Testament, number two, it, it appears 45 times. And it describes a long-lasting attitude that often continues to seek revenge. Like the word, if you want, in English, we can translate it as being uh, resentment. And the, the third word that is frequent, we find frequently in the New Testament is mentioned five times. It's a form of anger without the implication of inappropriate behavior. That can be described, if you, we have to summarize in one word, it will be the English word indignation would be a, a, good, a good word to use. So in the New Testament, Jesus teaches us some of the things that anger God. Uh, Jesus acted out his anger when he drove the, 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 the money changers out of the temple courts because he, he did this because they, they had made God's house a, some sort of a, a marketplace. They, they had cheated people and prevented them from worshiping God. Uh, we see it in Matthew chapter 21 verse 12. Uh, Jesus also became angry against the Pharisees because of their heartlessness. They wanted him to keep the rules they, they, they made for the Shabbat. And they, they had no compassion for the man with the shriveled hand whom Jesus healed. We see this in Mark chapter 3 verse 5. Jesus was very indignant when the disciples tried to prevent people from bringing children to him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 14. So he consistently felt righteous anger toward oppression, injustice, and unmet human needs. And he did not hesitate to express his angry, ang angry feelings. So since Jesus was without a sin, he vividly demonstrated for us that all anger is not a sin. But of course there are good or bad regarding anger. Rages by rage by insults by insults it expresses anger in explosive words or actions. Uh, resentment stuffs the the anger inside, and both forms of anger can destroy our relationships, affect our personalities, damage our effectiveness, and color our sense of worth. So indignation, however, can be the motivation for constructive, constructive action. Where would we be today if God-fearing men and women had not become indignant about the terrible traffic of, of the, regarding the black people? They were, they were like slaves and they suffered a lot. Um, the indignation we feel at the slaughter of millions of unborn infants had generated the pro-life movement uh, we have seen how this protest can be done in a matter consistent with Christianity. We also seen how it can lead to sin, of course, such as the murder of the abortionist, by instance. And there are more and more people, even non-Christians, are expressing indignation at the filth on television and in the movies today. Indignation stirs up the to action. It starts our engines. God has given us this emotion as a tool to protest evil, to mobilize us to action, to correct injustice, and to give us a passion for service. When we are angry about the things that anger God, 
we are on a safe track if we get in the indignation that will bring us to action rather than taking it to boost our personal self, our self-righteousness. And a good question when we start up, when we have to deal with anger, what makes you angry? Because I think we can learn a great deal about ourselves by considering the kinds of things that make us angry. We can ask ourselves the few questions. I just took some by example, but you can ask yourself a lot of questions when you have to deal uh, with anger. Do you feel indignation when a fellow employee is, is, uh, is uh, they treated him unfairly? Do the men at work anger you with their comments, jokes, and put-downs about women, by instance? Uh, do you re- respond with anger when your children are difficult to handle or disobedient? Are you resentful toward your boss because he's demanding and unsympathetic about your family pressures? Do you get angry when you seem to lose control over others? Are you enraged when your, your pride is bruised? And is your anger the result of ongoing grudges and bitterness and so on? The list could be long. But what is your emotional response to irritation, do you blow up at the least provocation, then forget the incident and, and leave the debris of injury in your wake? Uh, considering your answers to these questions can help you, can help us actually to reflect upon the sources of anger. And once we found the source, of course, we still have to manage the anger we, are, we have to deal with. Anger management, God's way, so you, because you probably know this, that God's word does not say we will never be angry. Uh, nor does it say that all anger is sin. However, it does set limits for us. We're told in your anger, do not sin. Do not, do not let the sun go down. This one, you, I think we have it on the screen somewhere. Yeah, I have it on the screen. Uh, while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anger can be a very constructive tool, able to build bridges, not walls, if it's managed properly. And, for example, if we commit ourselves to dealing with our anger before we go to bed, it won't grow during the night into resentment or bitterness. We don't necessarily have to resolve the problem right away, But at least we have to take the circumstances to the Lord and promise Him we will work out the details as soon as possible. Otherwise, we are warned that unresolved anger gives the devil a foothold in our lives. Anger is a wedge the devil drives into our spirits. If it is not resolved, it can lead to discouragement, depression, aten, and even murder. It can cause friction. Divisiveness in family, the church, and the workplace. And I think that's why the scriptures advises us, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So when we act badly, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And why does he grieve? Well, because he's willing to give us the power to react differently. And if we choose to ignore him, because he's there to to radiate Christ through our bodies. 
And if we persist in snuffing out that light with our sins, then although these behaviors are not the products of our sinful natures, we, of course, no longer have to be under the control of their residual sinful nature that it was us, but follow the Holy Spirit. Because in the New Testament, and more specifically in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, we learned that there are two sources of power for our live. As you know, the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit, the residual sinful nature, that we are no longer under that control anymore because the Holy Spirit is within us. And that's the, it's the Holy Spirit we must follow. So uh, we, we, we follow the Holy Spirit's guidance, yields our emotions to His control, and be attentive to His gentle care. And then He will produce in us the character of Jesus Christ. As you know, these characters, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 gives us a very good listing. And if these qualities are deeply in our character, they will surely change the way we respond to irritation and provocation. Because there's two ways to express angers. There's what we can call assertive anger, or if you want constructive anger, it puts forward one's belief and values in a confident self-assured manner. If it's, it, it is helpful and considerate of others, and when used correctly, constructive anger is something that is very positive. It seeks to put forward what a person believes to be right. However, aggressive anger is used in usually in an abrasive way, in sensitive ways. Uh, there is little concern for the impact the anger will have on the recipient. And that's why aggressive anger is usually negative. Uh, There's an incident in the life of the biblical character Nehemiah allows us to see how he dealt with a situation that made him very, very angry. He's a good example of an individual who used his anger assertively and his restraint produced positive results, as we will see. Nehemiah, uh, in the context Nehemiah, was in the midst of accomplishing a great work. He had returned to Jerusalem from a very influential position in the court of Babylon, and he had traveled there for one purpose, to organize the Jews, the, 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 the society of the Jews living in Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls around the city. Everybody was working day and night to finish the job. And then, there's a delegation of poor Jews that came to him with a complaint. And uh, you're going to have this on the screen. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do, you have the passage on the screen, and I'm going to summarize what's going on, because these are long passages, but for the context, it, it describes the situation. What happened there is that they were wealthy Jews, they were taking advantage of their poor brothers by lending them money and demanding interest and collateral. And this was a direct violation of the Mosaic Law. And Jews were never to charge interest to their own poor. And furthermore, they were forbidden to enslave another Jew for any reason. A debtor could work off his debt as a hired hand, but not as a slave. 
So what happened is that Nehemiah got a complaint, and this is the, the rest of the passage. And when he heard this, we found his reaction in Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 6, records Nehemiah's response. And he said, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Nehemiah's reaction was one of indignation, righteous indignation. And his anger was in harmony with God's anger. Because how can we, how can we use anger to bring about change? Here are some valuable principles about anger that we can learn from Nehemiah. The first thing he did, admit feeling angry. Nehemiah never covered up his emotions here. He acknowledged them openly and without apology. His anger started his genes and motivated him to action. The other thing Nehemiah did is think before he speaks. Nehemiah did not spout off the first thing that came into his head. He, he said, I pondered them in my mind. And then, only then, he accused the nobles and officials. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 7. First part of verse 7. I don't know if you have ever spout off and, and been very sorry afterward. Words that pop out of our minds. In the heat of anger are usually things we would not say if uh, we think before. We might not say it the same way or the same thing. So Nehemiah controlled his tongue until he had pondered. He planned exactly what he would do and demand. The New Testament gives us similar instructions when we find in James chapter 1. Verse 19, James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God, God desires. And as for the necessity of thinking before we speak, uh, I, I think James, James, a little bit later, James chapter 3, Verse 5 to 17, he makes a divine dissertation regarding the human tongues. What, what is it capable of? And when we read this, it, I think it encourages us to think uh, before we speak when we are very angry. And then, back to Nehemiah. Once he was thinking about what he's going to do, what he's going to say, then he spoke. And he said... This too, I'm gonna, we're going to have it on the screen. So Nehemiah knew that he had scriptural support for his point of view. He was fearless as he confronted these influential men. He charged them with violating God's law. Some persons have a tendency to treat people of wealth and power in a different way, uh, giving them more preferential treatment. They, they, they do this because maybe they, I don't know, they don't want to rock the boat. Um, maybe some churches, they don't want to lose their precious contributions. Uh, some others, they don't want them to retaliate. Uh, some others, they don't want lawsuit and business and so on. But Nehemiah, he did not, Nehemiah did not mince any words. He said, what you are doing is wrong. Stop it. 
give back, what, give back what you've taken. So he stood uncompromisingly for justice. His own example put them to shame. He demanded immediate restitution. He did not allow for any halfway measures. And what was the response from these powerful men? They said, we will give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. So the response was very good. Nehemiah had no illusion about people here. He was wise enough to make these men take, in, take a note in public before the Lord. That they would do as they promised. Nehemiah's indignation here resulted, uh, resulted in restitution and justice for his oppressed countrymen. And another thing that is important when we have to deal with uh, intense anger is also to check our stress level. Me personally, if, I, if I'm under pressure, if I didn't sleep well, didn't eat well, I may have a tendency to say things I, I don't mean and speak in a tone of voice I wouldn't normally use. So when you find yourself getting angry, I think it's important to check your, your stress level to see if you're not tired and impatient and oversensitive, because then we have to be more careful. There's also the hormonal zone. Danger in the hormone zone. Am I getting into a woman Bible study here? But seriously, the best material I've gotten this, I found a lot of good material from, a, from women's Bible study. Uh, Vicki Kraft from Dallas Seminary, she does wonderful things. So, of course, normal uh, hormonal changes can also play a part in our tolerance level. If you're in the midst of uh, menopause and your son is, uh, or your, your kids are teenagers, you might have a big cocktail of emotions to manage. And maybe your teenagers will have the impression of being a poorly, uh, a poorly matched pair with you. But some arrangements uh, needs to be done, of course. And... We need to yield our temper to the control of the, the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives within us and wants us to, to, to add victory over our besetting sins. So he is the one who produced self-control in us. And the more we let him take over, the more self-control we will have. And I think it begins with a, I would call it a timeout process because in order to keep our temper from, from controlling us, we have to take time out to turn our minds toward God. We have to choose to offer up our circumstances to Him, to release the, 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 the outcome to Him, and to ask Him for guidance and wisdom, because to pray for wisdom is a promise of God. You pray for wisdom, He's going to give it to you. And of course, uh, choose to forgive also. Choosing to forgive is an act of will. And a big difference in our behavior occurs when we live our lives knowing we are always going to forgive instead, instead of giving ourselves permission to hold grudges. But I mean, no matter where it is at work, or you might have a, some, some difficult, some people are difficult to work with, maybe at work or wherever it is. If a, pro, a person has a big problem of attitude, you, you may forgive the person, but you don't have to deal with this person every day. I mean, if you don't have to, it's not an obligation. You don't have to suffer the, the, the bad behavior of a person because you forgive, you forgive, but you don't have to run for troubles, I mean. And also to accept our circumstances from God. Because they may not change. 
Because if you find that you're continually made angry by your circumstances, uh, they are chances that you're waiting for God to do something miraculous. Uh, maybe you're waiting for him to change your world in a, in a better place. And the fact is that he's more likely to change you from inside out so that you're able to cope with your present circumstances. And in the meantime, he will use, as you know, he will use that difficult situation. Perhaps it's your, can be your children, parents, employer, whatever it is, your health conditions. So it's going to develop the fruit of the spirit in our life. And it does. In the meanwhile, we'll, we will also rejoice in our suffering. It doesn't necessarily, not necessarily come immediately. Sometimes it takes time. But it's going to produce, as the Bible says, perseverance, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I'm just quoting Romans chapter 5, verse 3. It's not always easy, but it's true. And, of course, if we fail, we know what to do. We confess. If we talk, we say things we don't want to say. We hurt a person. Well, we confess. We confess. These little words, I'm sorry, for real, I don't say, oh, I'm sorry, but I mean, you really do it sincerely, and maybe go a little bit further to what can we do to work this out, and to pray for wisdom, I think, is the key, it's a very important thing, and this is a promise, this is a promise of the Bible, if you pray for wisdom, you're going to have it, and, there, and when we talk about God, uh, I mean, this is the key. The more we are in the scriptures, the more we have a life close to God, the, the more it changed our way to see and to act and to deal with anger. There's another uh, very intense emotion. Well, quite intense because people really dislike it. It's rejection. Rejection is a thing we face a lot if we live according to God as opposed to this world. And also rejection is something you, we experience if we do evangelism. Rejection can be described as a painful experience, no matter what the cause. And all too often, I think people don't assign enough blame to the rejector. They simply agree with his or her evaluation and carry a feeling of inferiority or of being damaged goods all their lives. But what is important, I think, is that rejection is not a measure of true worth. But rejection, does it, you, you can ask yourself sometimes, does it affect me? Because if individuals don't appreciate you as a, as a total person, because they, I don't know, they don't like your look, your performance, or whatever they don't like, uh, I mean, that doesn't mean that you really are what they think you are. Are you in? intrinsically less valuable if you have our time to pronounce intrinsically in a public speech. What I mean by that is that we, 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 sh we, we don't have to permit someone to label us for the rest of our life. And that is a very important because rejection is not the measure of who you are. If we consider by instance Jacob's two wives Leah and Rachel, we can see how envy and jealousy can destroy harmony and love in a family. As we study the emotional obstacle of rejections, let's take a, a closer look at Leah's spiritual journey 
Because Leah was a woman who lived with the pain of rejection every day of her life. First of all, Leah was never respected by her father. In that day, it was the father's responsibility to arrange for his daughters to marry. And during the seven years Jacob worked for Rachel, for, for Rachel actually, Laban could have tried to find a husband for Leah. If he had offered maybe a big enough dory, he would have found someone to marry her. I don't know if he was too cheap, but apparently he thought she was hopeless as a marriage prospect. And the only way to get rid of her was to palm her off of, on poor Jacob, and who was in love with Rachel, as we know. And Laban passed Leah off to Jacob, like, a little bit like a dishonest businessman getting rid of damaged goods at a full price. Leah was unwanted, unloved. Can you imagine how Leah must have felt when Jacob looked at her in the morning light with a shock, distaste, and anger? That terrible deception on Jacob's wedding night set in motion much of the grief that family experienced for decades to come. And sadly, Leah did not deserve that rejection. Apparently, her rejection was based on her, her looks or her weak eyes. But nobody noticed her character, her inner self, her mind. And, I mean, this is not much different than the way uh, things are today. Eh? I don't think you've seen an ugly Miss America. But Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. If we, um, if we think at all about those little six words, from Genesis chapter 29, well, I think we'll, we'll be able to imagine the many ways Jacob demonstrated his feelings. But we also see how God expressed his feelings for Leah. God stepped in to let Leah know she was valuable to him by allowing her to bear children. Still, Leah suffered her husband's rejection so from her, we can learn some important principles for handling rejections. First of all, face the facts realistically. Leah knew she wasn't loved. She wasn't fooled. And she didn't fool herself. Unfortunately, some people make uh, excuses and cover up for those who reject them. Because if they acknowledge their cruelty, it hurts them too much. And worse yet, they keep on trying to be accepted and as a result, face rejection over and over. Leah's longing for Jacob's, uh, Jacob's love probably lasted all her life. But she learned to live with the situation. Her spiritual journey led her to reality and acceptance. And awareness of God indicates a stable relationship with God that sustained her and gave her the strength to endure the, her painful circumstances. Her spiritual growth is reflected in the names she gave her children. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord had seen Reuben to see, and so on, See what? See my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So Reuben's 
see, and more precisely in the context of the Bible, see, son. But when it's pronounced in Hebrew, it's, it sounds like he has seen my measure, apparently the old Hebrew. So what does that tell us about Leah? Leah's life, she was miserable. Listen to her cries. Surely my husband will love me now. So we learn something important from her here. Don't pretend. Confess your feelings. To accept the way things are and to admit you would like them to be different are, of course, two different matters. It is not spiritual to pretend that everything's fine and you're, you're, you're not really hurt when you are. So tell the Lord how you feel. He knows it anyways, but he want to hear it from you. And if you can, share your feeling with a trusty, trustworthy friend. If you have one who will pray for you, both, both of these honest expressions are important to our emotional and spiritual health. But despite the birth of Reuben, Leah remained unloved. As the account continues, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I'm not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon, Shimeon, Shomea, which means one who hears. So Leah believed that because the Lord had heard that she was not loved, he had given her another son as a con- for consolation, if you want. But what exactly did God hear? Was Leah told in words that she was unloved? Uh, by whom? Uh, did Rachel uh, spitefully remind Leah that she was uh, the boob, like a booby prize? As Rachel's jealousy increased because she, wasn't, she was barren. Or did, uh, did this mean that uh, Leah told God in her prayers about her rejection? I think sadly both scenarios were probably true. And before long, Leah had another son, and again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons, so, she, so he was named Levi. Levi sounds like the word attach in Hebrew, and this time Leah lowered her expectations. Now she would be satisfied with just some feelings of genuine connection from Jacob and some appreciations. She had never mentioned love again. It seems she had finally faced the fact that Jacob would probably never love her as he did Rachel. So this could be summarized in, I mean, one expression. Give up unrealistic expectations because sometimes we make ourselves unhappy by envisioning changes that are not going to take place. Maybe your mother will never be uh, warm as you would like her to be, a loving person as you would like her to be. Your father may never tell you verbally that he loves you. Uh, your, Your husband may never be able to let down the walls of protection he has built around himself and share the intimacy you long for. I mean, if you, I, I think if you spend your life focused on making uh, some other person change, I hope you know that you're usually wasting a lot of time and energy. The problem is not yours. The fault does not lie with you. 
and you're not unworthy, instead of the other person may be incapable of the normal response of an, uh, of an emotionally healthy person. So we see this happen in uh, Leah when a very, very important shift occurs in her focus after her fourth son is born. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Yehuda. Uh, then she stopped having children. Yehuda, as you know, means praise. And after years of pains, Leah's entire focus turned to God. And this time she did not mention Jacob at all. Instead, she got her sense of worth from God. She knew God valued her because he had proved it to her in a way that was understood in that culture. He gave her children. She was devalued by her father. She was rejected by her husband. She was envied by her sister. But she was loved by God and that fact gave her the strength to go on. One sentence, shift your focus to God's acceptance of you. Take a moment, open your Bible, and read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 14. And then you're going to see how special you are to God. Because you're, I put them on the screen as a summary, you're blessed, you're chosen, you're loved, you're predestined, adopted, redeemed, Forgiven, lavish with grace, included in Christ, sealed with the Spirit, guaranteed an inheritance. So, when we trust Christ and establish a relationship with Him, He accepts us with arms wide open. His acceptance is what gives us real value. Because it's from Him that we should derive our self-image. Don't give the person or other person who, re- who reject you a permission to put a price tag on you. God has put His price tag on you. And you are worth so much to Him that He came Himself to die for you. So you could be His son or daughter. Born into His family by faith in Jesus Christ. This is to follow, I think, Leah's example. To praise the Lord. And soon after, Leah stopped bearing children. And she followed Rachel's lead in giving her maid to Jacob. So she could have more sons. And even the names Leah gave to those sons born to her maid indicates a thankful attitude. Good fortune and happy. So she's thankful for God's gifts. Focus on God does, doesn't mean we don't ever feel uh, resentment or unfair treatment. Leah was not perfect either. When Rachel tried to prevent her from having more children by keeping Jacob from, from sleeping with her, she d- demeaned herself by hiring him for the night with her son's mandrakes. But she also have prayed because we read, God listened to Leah And she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my maidservants to my husband. So uh, she named him Issachar. I I don't think that God gave Leah another son because she gave her maid to Jacob. I believe he answered her prayer simply because he loved her. And even today we have 
wrong concepts about God. Although we possess the complete revelation of the scriptures, remember Leah had no Bible, eh? Everything Leah knew about God had been transmitted orally, mostly from Jacob, and Jacob did not understand the grace of God very well at that period of time. And even, even then, God wasn't through showing Leah with his uh, blessing. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time, my husband will treat me with honor. Because I have borne him six sons, so she named him Zebulon. Another son, and she welcomed him as a precious gift from God. Now she was willing to settle for even less. She just wanted her husband to give her the honor due her as the mother of six sons. As special blessing, we read that she also gave birth to a daughter that she named her Dinah. Dia, Dina. So how easy it is to overlook God's blessing because there's something sometimes we don't have. These uh, if-onlys, I would have this, 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 and that. Sometimes it blinds us to the wonderful provisions we have received, and we refuse uh, to see them sometimes as we should. Because, of course, life, can, life is unfair. If, if we, 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 will all, we all experience pain in the world, in the world and this is, a, this is a fallen world, and we are a fallen race, there is no way to escape suffering instead of... Instead of uh, I mean, if we accepted it and trust God to use it, he works out for, he works the things out for us. Because uh, God has a way of compens- compensating us for our hurts. And as we learn to deal with adversity, our personal character develops. Leah was the mother of half of Jacob's son. And half of the twelve tribes of Israel descended from her. And, and yet she lived with rejection all her life. Her father, her husbands, her sister. But God proved his acceptance of her in a language she could understand by giving her six sons and a daughter. Jacob chose Rachel, but God chose Leah. Rachel had uh, what Leah longed for, but it did not make her uh, necessarily a better person. We see no evidence of contentment or gratitude in Rachel's life. And there's no reason to believe that she had a relationship with the Lord comparable to Leah's. Apparently, the pain of rejection caused Leah to turn to to the Lord. And in, in doing so, she found her contentment in Him. In the long term, God had the greatest blessing of all in store for Leah. Even though she didn't live to see it, God, as you know, chose Judah, Leah's son, to be the father of the royal dynasty dynasty through which his Messiah would be born. Christ, the son of David, lion of the tribe of Judah, and like his grandmother generation before him, Jesus himself, God himself was rejected too. Is the best to help us to deal with rejection. We cannot say, oh God, you don't know what it is. He knows very well what it is, more, more than anybody else. So these are the um, observations that can be done regarding uh, the fear of rejection. And it ends the study. All right?